The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their articles from the issue. I'm Cindy Yu. This week, we're joined by Jade McLinn, who writes about the Russian wives and mothers turning on Putin because they don't know where their husbands and sons are. Lucy Dunn, the Spectator's social media editor, asks whether pharmacists could be one of the answers to the NHS crisis. And finally, we hear from Graham Thompson, who writes about protest songs. First up is Jade McLinn. The women of Voronezh are very busy these days. Across the Russian city, aunties are busy sewing boots and winter clothing. Relatives are busy crowdfunding for night goggles and drones. Wives are busy demonstrating outside military bases. Mothers are busy making preparations to travel 150 miles southwest where they will cross the border into Ukraine to find and bring home the broken bodies of their abandoned sons. The wives and mothers of Voronezh are not alone in their efforts or in their demands that the authorities return their under-equipped and under-trained men. In neighbouring Kursk region, relatives of Mobiks, men called up for mobilisation to Ukraine in September, staged a protest on the Russian-Ukrainian border. In Dagestan, women played a key role in the demonstrations that followed Vladimir Putin's call for mobilisation. The protest only died down after the local governor promised that men without military experience would not be drafted. Ever the self-preservationist, Putin gave governors responsibility for mobilisation efforts. This meant he could deflect blame, using local government as a shield from the inevitable backlash. His tactic has worked in some places, like Vologda in northern Russia, where mothers have been bombarding the governor with messages to bring their men home. But lately, more and more of the mother's calls, if not yet criticism, are starting to be directed at Putin. Networks have developed as women try to find supplies and information to help their loved ones. Among these organisations, the Council of Soldiers' Wives and Mothers has been especially forthright in their complaints. Imitating the Kremlin's hypermasculinized language, its spokeswoman accused male politicians of running scared of mothers. She even asked the president to prove he is a real man by meeting them. The council shares similar aims and nomenclature with the Committee of Soldiers' Wives and Mothers who traversed the mountains of the Caucasus to find their sons, dead or alive, during the Chechen wars of the 1990s to the 2000s. Even though the Kremlin designated the group a foreign agent in 2014, the committee continues to offer advice and support today. Distraught wives and mothers tell familiar tales of young Russian mobics abandoned by their officers, armed only with grenades or assault rifles against tanks, forced to dig trenches with their bare hands, fed on mouldy rations, thrown into underground cave prisons, raped and tortured for refusing to follow suicidal orders. Many of these conditions aren't new. 
Since February, it has been clear that the Russian military is riven by corruption and incompetence, and that soldiers are treated like cannon fodder, or cannon meat, to use the gruesomely evocative Russian term. What is new is the increasingly loud complaints about these conditions from mothers and wives in particular. Before September, the visible lack of such protests had led many to question why women were reacting differently to Russia's war on Ukraine as compared to the wars in Chechnya and Afghanistan. While factors such as the comparative weakness of civil society should not be overlooked, the key difference was that conscripts were sent to those conflicts, while until September, contractors were sent to Ukraine. The mother of a conscript holds a different moral authority to that of a contractor in Russian society. Many mothers of the contractors, rather than calling for peace, spent the early months of the war fermenting pro-war sentiment, touring schools, organising online and offline meetings of students to form in their minds the correct picture of the world. They urged children to show support to the soldiers and officers of the Russian armed forces and the so-called separatists of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics who, in their view, fight fascism and Nazism in Ukraine. This spirit of militarism persists in some of the recent public comments from Mobik's wives and mothers, who are often keen to stress that they are patriots and are not criticising the war per se. As the mother of a 19-year-old soldier missing in action in Ukraine explained, We didn't pay a bribe to get him out of military service. We did it all honestly. We're patriots. How could we have known the army was in this state? It is easy to empathise with women trying to rescue their sons, but that empathy should not blind anyone to the reality that these are not anti-war protests. These complaints are not evidence of outrage that the Russian army is raping and killing Ukrainian citizens, depriving cities of heat and electricity, and targeting missiles at maternity hospitals. This is outrage that the Russian army is not equipping their men properly. How will the government react to these protests? The Kremlin is wary of the destabilising role played by wives and mothers in other wars and aware of public sympathies, and it will want to be seen to assuage the relatives, all while silencing them as quickly as possible. Governors have been encouraged to meet the women, with mixed results. During a meeting with the mothers of Mobiks killed in Ukraine, Irkutsk governor Igor Kobsev consoled them with a matter-of-fact reminder that their sons belonged not to them, but to the Russian state. Putin himself met with hand-picked mothers last week, two days before Russians celebrated Mother's Day. This was a carefully curated audience and event, part of a series of efforts to co-opt the mothers, or groups of them, into the party of war. Olga Tsukhanova, the chief organiser of the Council of Wives and Mothers, complained that no one from the group was invited and that the meeting was stuffed with what she called pocket monies. Other efforts to channel dissent into acceptable channels are happening via popular social media stars on Telegram, such as the glamorous Anastasia Kashvarova. She is a member of the raucously misnamed Liberal Democrats, used by the Kremlin to siphon off more nationalist and extreme voters into managed opposition, and helps mothers to find missing soldiers and collect supplies for them.
She is critical of some authorities, recently launching a tirade against Dmitry Medvedev for offering soldiers much in the way of fiery rhetoric and little in the way of firearms. But Dmitry Medvedev is an approved punching bag. Ms. Kashevarova operates within the acceptable red lines. The Kremlin is also bringing in a new law to prosecute those who damage the morale of the army. It is easy to see this law being used to characterise organisations like the Council of Mothers and Wives as enemies, contrasting them with the pocket monies, and women like Anastasia, who serve as correct examples of how concerned women should behave. This approach might work with some people, but by and large it will only mask the problem. The Russian public have so far broadly supported a faraway war of which they knew little. But now that it has come to their homes, the reaction will be very different. There are few more unmanageable forces than a grieving mother whose son went to war heroically, in her view, and then died needlessly and painfully and abandoned by his own. Such sentiments are summed up by a message being actively shared on telegram channels for wives and mothers. Our men aren't being defeated by the Chochols, an ethnic slur against Ukrainians. They are being defeated by our own side. Its resonance is a warning to the Kremlin. These women are on the Russian soldiers' side against Ukraine, but also, if necessary, against the authorities. That was Jade McGlynn. And now, Lucy Dunn, who in a previous life was a junior doctor. It started as a small red shadow on my nose that gradually began to spread as the inflammation took hold. Soon, the lesion was painful. A golden crust appeared and my suspicions were confirmed. Impetigo. Impetigo was an incredibly infectious skin condition and, if left untreated, it can scar. Topical antibiotics, fustan ointment, work a treat. But I had just moved to London and had no GP in the city. I wasn't too worried though. The importance of the multidisciplinary team had been branded onto my brain from day one of medical school, and so I called my nearest boots. I have impetigo, I told them, and I'm looking for fusidin. I was to come in and ask for the pharmacist, they said. So I did exactly that. Peering over the top of his glasses, the pharmacist wrinkled his nose. It does look bad, he murmured, and then shuffled the papers in front of him and pulled out some form of impetigo checklist. It didn't feel necessary. I clearly met the criteria. He asked me some questions. I answered them. You'll have to go to your GP, he said at last. You need an antibiotic for this. I was told I could get that here, I replied. He shook his head, eyes already on the customer behind me. We can't prescribe you antibiotics without a prescription from your GP. My GP's in Glasgow, I said, and it was a Sunday. Phone 111, he advised. You need to get it treated quickly, today. Really? I could see the cream only a metre behind him. I phoned 111, listened to the pre-recorded message about going straight to hospital if you have chest pain, and felt like an idiot. An hour later, I was still on the phone. You'll have to go to your nearest A&E, the woman on the line told me. A&E? I had a rash in my nose. If I'd felt like an idiot phoning 111, it was nothing compared with how it felt to be sitting. Three hours later in an A&E waiting room, with a patient vomiting on one side of me and a groaning man, head in his hands, on the other. I kept apologising to the staff. They didn't seem especially surprised. This is what happens on weekends, one said. A&E waiting times have reached record highs in recent years, 
Trying to get an appointment with your GP is a challenge too. Doctors are overworked and patients aren't getting seen quickly. The issue isn't a lack of money. When it comes to health spending, the UK is the fifth highest in the 32-member OECD. It's how the money is spent. The way the system is organised needs to change. Why couldn't that pharmacist simply have passed me the cream? The problem is that pharmacists are not automatically allowed to prescribe when they graduate after five years of education. Despite their courses being the same length as a medical degree, pharmacists lack the clinical decision-making their medical counterparts see as vital for any clinical setting. No, if pharmacists want to prescribe the medicines they've spent so long studying, they have to do an additional course on top of their five years. This is optional, and so many haven't done it. Of almost 27,000 community pharmacists in England, only 1,000 have completed an additional prescribing qualification. It doesn't have to be this way. In France, it's easy to get wound care, such as stitches at the chemist. In American states, such as Florida, independent pharmacists have been prescribing for years. And in other states, chemists can prescribe alongside a doctor. In Canada, pharmacists with prescribing rights can write up scripts independently. While in New Zealand, legislation has been introduced enabling appropriately qualified pharmacists to prescribe. There are signs that change might be coming to the UK, albeit slowly. In December 2020, the General Pharmaceutical Council approved new standards for education and training, ensuring that pharmacists who graduate in 2026 will leave as prescribers. With these course changes, all pharmacists will be prescribers and so will be able to treat urinary tract infections, ear infections and upper respiratory tract infections, a senior pharmacist working in medical education told me. The aim is for pharmacists to run COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, asthma and diabetes clinics. Data from Scotland suggests that enabling all pharmacists to prescribe antibiotics for urinary tract infections alone could save 400,000 GP appointments a year, and approximately 8.4 million. This year, the core advanced pharmacist curriculum was introduced by the Royal Pharmaceutical Society to help bridge the gap between the scientific and clinical sides of their work. Scotland is a slight step ahead with its Patient Group Directive and Pharmacy First Plus service, which allows independent prescribers to treat patients with common conditions. But this remains a contrived tick-box process. Next year, a trial of independent prescribing services for pharmacists in England will begin, a test for a wider rollout of independent prescribing services, and the first NHS-funded independent prescribing service in England. While the vision is admirable, the timeline is not. Former Health Secretary Sajid Javid was ready to roll out pharmacy first plans for England last year, but the scheme was squashed by Boris Johnson's number 10 at the final hour due to fears that it could look too anti-GP. But emergency services are crumbling now. Patients are struggling to access GPs. 2026 feels too far away. As the NHS struggles to deal with the post-pandemic fallout, the volume of patients who require help is multiplying all the time. And then there's medication supply chain problems and prescription waiting times in pharmacies that already are usually upwards of 20 minutes. If the plan is going to succeed, patients also need to be prepared to stop calling their GP and go straight to the chemist for minor ailments. My impetigo is gone. Thankfully, I wasn't left with a scar. It worked out fine, if you can call a five-hour hospital wait fine. But if I'd been prescribed fusidin by my pharmacist, I wouldn't have taken up a space in the virtual phone queue. Or the very real hospital one. That was Lucy Dunn. And now, Graham Thompson. Over here. Over here. 
The extraordinarily brave anti-CCP protesters have been striking up Do You Hear the People Sing from the Miserable in the streets of many cities. A song written in 1980 for a musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's 1862 novel has become an unlikely rallying cry in present-day China. Like all the most effective protest songs, Do You Hear the People Sing has transcended its origins. In 2014, it was picked up during the Maiden Revolution in Ukraine. There are now several ad hoc translations in Cantonese and Taiwanese. One of these, Asking Who That Hasn't Spoken Out, was heard during the Hong Kong protests in 2019, when students sang it over the national anthem at a school assembly. At which point the song was mysteriously vanished by the authorities and removed from the Chinese music platform QQ Music. This only enhanced its revolutionary status. Ancient protest songs, from 17th century diggers' anthems to Irish rebel tunes, have endured because their message is adaptable. One of the oldest English examples is the Cutty Wren. The folk revivalist A.L. Lloyd once claimed, without much evidence, that it dated back to the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, the young Wren symbolising the boy King Richard II being killed and fed to the poor. The peak of protest songs coincided with the nuclear age, the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. Bob Dylan was its poster boy in the early 1960s, before recognising that an ideological position was a creative straitjacket, at which point, of course, he became a Judas to the folk movement. When he performed in China in 2011, Dylan readily consented to the state's request not to play Desolation Row and Blowing in the Wind. This last tune is a classic example of an effective protest song directing a righteous sense of injustice against an undefined enemy. Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley is another, which advocates for social agitation in the vaguest terms. John Lennon understood that for a protest song to stick, it must flirt with banality. Why else write Imagine and give peace a chance? A simple melody helps. Woody Guthrie's This Land Is Your Land is almost a nursery rhyme. For a song to rouse, inspire and disrupt across decades, it must be applicable outside the context of its creation. Many a topical protest song, penned in the heat of events, remains specific to them. Ohio, by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Special's Free Nelson Mandela, and Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddam are magnificent, but they would not cut the mustard with protesters in China in 2022. Likewise, a distinction should be made between songs written to be heard and those written to be chanted. It's hard to imagine protesters singing Gil Scott Heron's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised en masse outside some despotic embassy. The protest song is not dead, but there are fewer today. To write one requires a certain idealism, which is in short supply in the West. In China, conversely, an anthem written for a fictional uprising in 1815 France is giving added impetus to a real one today. That was Graham Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can pick up an issue of the magazine to read more articles like it, including my column in this week's issue about why I'm grieving for China. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>